0: We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John Kaplan with five-time CRO and author of the wildly successful book, The Qualified Sales Leader, my good
1: friend, John McMahon. Johnny, how are you, buddy? Doing great, Cap. I'm uh, interested in what our guest has to say today, so I'm pretty excited.
0: Me too. Me too, brother. Hey, um, let's get into it. Uh, Zach Rosenberg co-founded SBP in 2006 after Hurricane Katrina. He plays a direct role in the advisement of state and local government officials to help create long-term recovery programs. Zach has been featured in Newsweek, U.S. News and World Report, Politico, Wall Street Journal and The Washington Post and has been recognized as a New Orleanian of the Year and Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project Champion of Justice and received the Manhattan Institute Social Innovation Award. Before founding SBP, Zach was a teaching fellow at the Georgetown University Law Center, and he ran a criminal defense practice in Washington, D.C. Zach received his B.A. from Ohio Wesleyan University and a J.D. from the American University Washington School of Law and holds an honorary doctorate from Muhlenberg College and Distinguished Alumnus Award from Washington College of Law, Johnny. Uh, please welcome our guest, Zach Rosenberg. Hey, Zach! Excited to have you, bud.
2: Well, thanks. Real to be with you guys. Thank you, Phyllis.
0: You're welcome. Hey, um, we got an intro from you. It was really, um, it was really an interesting timing because we got an intro f- to you from our good friend Chris Rysek, who I know is a good friend of yours. Um, And it was right around the time of Hurricane Ian, where both Johnny and I have places down in uh, Florida. And um, it it was just really kind of um, an interesting time to get an introduction to you. So we'll dig into a little bit more of that as we go through this. But Zach, you have such an interesting and powerful background of service. And we're going to dig into that. I would love to just kind of get started with you telling us a little bit about, um, uh, you know, what, what you do, I I'd like to hear more about SBP started off with that SBP and what it's focused on and why it's needed. And that'll be a good way for us to kind of get started.
2: Yeah, thanks, John. So SBP started in St. Bernard Parish, Louisiana, which is the neighborhood right next to the lower ninth ward. Before Katrina, I'd never been in St. Bernard Parish in my life. Uh, I'd go to Jazz Fest every year um, for about eight years before Katrina happened. When Katrina happened, like so many other Americans, wrote a check right? Felt like the right thing to do and kind of went on with my life. And, uh, at that point I was representing in the people, poor people accused of crime. And I was representing this one guy, Ed Burns, and he had, he had a really hairy case. He was innocent, uh, but it wasn't clear the courts of law were going to find him innocent. He didn't do it. He was accused of attempted murder. Um, So every day for about eight months, I was going to bed thinking about Mr. Burns. I was waking up in the middle of the night thinking about Mr. Burns. I was waking up in the morning thinking about Mr. Burns. And even when I was talking to people, I was thinking about Mr. Burns. Um, Tried his case. He was found not guilty. It was a big deal. And I wanted to do anything besides think about Mr. Burns. Um, And my wife at that point, who was my girlfriend, is my better two-thirds had just gotten a grad degree from George Washington was switching jobs. And her mom happened to have, she was retiring as a nurse midwife. So the three of us decided to go to new Orleans for two weeks and help. It just felt like something we'd do and then we'd get back to our lives. And Liz sent out about 30 emails to all the big groups. Hey, we're going to help. What can we do? What can we bring? And we heard from one group, uh, was a bunch of hippies who were feeding people in St. Bernard Parish. They were funded by the United Way and they were feeding people. And at that point, we thought, uh, maybe we missed it. The recovery must be over. This New Orleans, if you think back to the early 90s, like we were, oil was on our minds as it's becoming again. Third of the country's oil goes through Louisiana. Everybody knows New Orleans. Disasters happen six months after the storm must be over. When we got there, it wasn't over. It hadn't started. We saw cars on top of houses, houses on top of cars. But what was most compelling and poignant and heartbreaking for us is seeing people who had achieved this element of American success, right? People who own their own homes. I had done poverty work my whole life. I thought if you buy a house, you're going to be okay. Things can only get so bad. And we saw these people, veterans, the Korean War veteran, police officer Bob Burris, World War II veteran, Mr. Andre, right? These hardworking folks who were sleeping in attics and cars and garages. And so we spent two weeks feeding them, you know, cooking. We slept in tents. uh, We joined the hippies. We didn't have long hair, but we were were in it um, feeding people. And we got to know these folks really, really well. These were people, like so many folks impacted by disaster, who had never asked for help before in their lives. Asking for help was anathema, to no matter who they were. It just wasn't what they did. They helped. One woman, Don Nunez, wrote a poem about it. And all they wanted was to move home. And so after two weeks, we didn't think we could tell these folks, like, all right, y'all, good luck. Have a nice life. Hang in there. Um, we thought you know, let's do the easy thing or let's do what we can do. Let's go back to DC and raise some money for whoever's going to do the rebuilding. And so we went to all the big groups again and said, when are you going to start building? And it was like, they were reading off a script saying we've done disaster recovery the same way for 30 years. Can't change. Why would we change buildings? The third phase and you can't do the third phase until you do the first and the second. Uh, so, we told him the to pound and we'd figure it out ourselves. And on a lark, we kind of moved there. We kept my law practice. You know, we needed income. We thought we'd just build houses, the two of us. Long story short, or maybe not as short as it should have been, and my team will say it's definitely not as short as it should have been. Um, we started SVP. At that point, it was called the St. Bernard Project with the mission of rebuilding homes for Katrina survivors. Uh, it's since turned into this national entity. We got really good at building houses. We can tell you how we did that based on the Toyota production system. But most importantly, we learned that the building houses was reactive, right? It was waiting till after people suffered. It could never get to scale. And if we really cared about clients, we really loved our clients. The answer can't be more Band-Aids. The answer had to be, and maybe we'll go into this, how do you put yourself out of business? Right? And, How do you obviate the need to be putting Band-Aids on? And so we expanded SBP's remit to upstream solutions that fortify people against their breaking point. We make sure the government programs work. We try and increase the amount of people who have flood insurance. We teach people to make their homes more resilient before disaster and navigate recovery after, including employees of companies. Uh, And then we work on system change interventions as well. And we also support other nonprofit groups. Long way of saying SPP exists to reduce the time between disaster and recovery and fortify people against preventable suffering.
1: So, Zach, two questions based upon what you said. So it sounds like going down there initially was just a little bit of a distraction, but and it touched you personally once you were down there, but there had to be something more than just a distraction that that touched you personally to go down there in the first place. What, what was that,
2: man? I wish I could say there was something profound. We just wanted to help, you know, Liz had some time between jobs and we just wanted to help. And then seeing people, it was striking for me to see people who weren't in poverty before. And we didn't have a language for what we saw at that point, John, but they were at risk of being pushed beyond their breaking point. Some of them were. Yeah. Suicide, given up on life, alive mm-hmm. but not living. Sure. Later on, mm-hmm. we figured out what the real issue was. It was the breaking point. And there's three things that drive the breaking point. And that's where we, as a business, we're a nonprofit group, but we operate with the focus, maniacal focus of a business. There's three things that... Lead to the breaking point, the amount of time between disaster and recovery, yeah the amount of predictability that people have or lack thereof, right we can we can grow our resilience if there's a clear path forward, regardless of how long it's going to take, but our resilience is, decays if we're staring into this abyss of uncertainty. so time, predictability and access to resources, and we saw people who were batting over for three. And mm. we're ready to give up. Yeah. And that's where we spend all our time right now.
1: So, Zach, this hits home for me because my house in Florida was significantly affected by the recent Hurricane Ian. You know, my entire first floor was wiped out. I lost my cars. And, you know, it's four months later. I'm still living in a condo. And I feel lucky that I'm living in a condo and not in a car. You know, while my house is being remediated. But what I've witnessed is the lack of time Supplies and resources, because so every what happens when one of these disasters comes in, from my perspective, is everybody's in the same predicament. So everything becomes a race, a race against mold, which is one thing that if you don't live down in the south, you don't really think about A race against mold, a race to find workers, a race to find materials, a race to find fans and dehumidifiers and generators, a race to find a car, race to find a place to live. And in that process. Also avoiding the multitude of con men (laughs) that descend upon, you know, a devastation. Right. And in that race, there's people that move quickly and some that move slowly like any race And the slow ones lose their homes. Like just on my block, there were six homes that have already been knocked down because the people waited too long and the mold took over. So talk a little bit about the lack of time, resources, supplies, and how this is just like a race
2: to rebuild and a race to survive. Yeah, with with potentially horrendous consequences. Totally. Totally. You know, John, I'd been doing this for years uh, until I had my son 10 years ago. And I thought I got it, right? This was, I changed our life, right? We, we moved, we changed careers. It was a rough road. I thought I got it. Once I had my son and he was sort of a sentient being, it struck me differently. Having, not being able to answer the question to your kid when they ask, when are we gonna move home, mom? When are we gonna be able to move home, dad? Is everything gonna be all right? Are we gonna get in our house? The stakes are high. The stakes are different, but not different at different economic levels. Any way you cut it, it comes to predictability, time and access to resources. And for folks who have means, it can be differently, excruciatingly challenging. If you have the means, but you still don't have the access to the resources, mm. the contractors, the supplies, um, the inspectors, the what have you. For folks with means often who are used to getting things done, you make one bad decision. You talk about the con men, the, whether it's the mold scammers or just the regular contractor frauders. If right. you, John, I think we talked a number of months ago and yes. your listeners certainly can you go to our website, we have learnings on focusing on avoiding contractor fraud. And it sounds like a jab your eye out, uh, topic, but the truth about mold, right? People needs to go to the truth about mold. I'll never forget in L, Louisiana. It was there was, about three years after Katrina, there was another storm that came through. Our team went out to Slide L. And there was, yeah, John, I told you about this. Um, There was a a U.S. military man. I forget what his service was. He was deploying the next day. He paid $28,000 to a mold remediation company when he had six inches of water. Just because he thought, I'm leaving. I got to make this guy said, if you love your family, this is what you have to do. And he did it. So a lot of what we're doing at SBP is showing people the path forward and then they participate or we help them as we can, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But it's a race with dire, dire consequences.
1: Yeah. And people are vulnerable. One, like you said, they're emotional and they're also vulnerable and, and they're vulnerable to the con men because somebody finally shows up because like for me, I called <laughs> Worker after worker, plumber after electrician after worker. And they all say they're going to show up and then they don't show up. So if you get somebody that shows up all of a sudden, you're like, "Okay, here comes the hero that's going to help help me survive. So you're vulnerable and you're emotional and it's pretty easy to be conned. And I'm sure the con men take advantage of that.
2: Well, they do. They say, I'm here, but your neighbor wants me or a guy five streets over wants me. So you got to see now. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. You gotta pay cash, and I've seen savvy business people succumb to this dire pressure, and they have all the leverage in the world, right? It's the from business. You think about the institutional actor advantage, and so part of what SVP is doing is trying to level the playing field through knowledge, through best practices. We have this app that we made in partnership with AT and It's called Equip. And it's checklist based. It's really geared for people's moms, right? Uh, Avoiding contractor fraud, the truth about mold, navigating FEMA, maximizing insurance, Mm -hmm. how to make your home more resilient. Uh, We tried to build it around the checklist manifesto, which is a a book. Maybe you read. So we try at SVP. Well, we are a nonprofit group. We have clients and that clients don't want some hippy-dippy group. They want a tenacious, focused entity. And we try and run it um, with the mindset of a maniacally focused business.
1: Yeah. Now, Zach, you also talked about like there's people with means and people without means. So now when we get to, let's say, the insurance companies, they move really slow. In some ways, I don't want to put a term on it, but they do know that people are vulnerable. They know they're emotional and they know that they may not have the means. So in my, what I've witnessed with, you know, not just myself, but other people that I know, they'll lowball low the damage and reimbursement, hand the people a check, sign a release here. And now the people realize at some point, this money's never going to get my house back together again. So now I'm even in in a worse bind. I get a check that basically gets me half of my house remediated and the other half, you know, I'm going to have to go take a loan out to get, you know, the rest of it done. So the the insurance companies are part of this also.
2: Yeah. So I would buy for, in my experience, I buy for Kate, the insurance companies. You buy from what? Buy for Kate. So I separate. Buy for Kate. Okay. Yep. The insurance companies. We've partnered with Farmers Insurance for the past 11 years. We never would have gotten to Joplin, Missouri if it wasn't for Farmers Insurance. I it's know a- the just retired CEO Jeff Daly extraordinarily well and he walked me through their business case of why doing the right thing is not just the right thing, it's the right business thing to do. It's uh, not the cheapest insurance company. Right. Farmers but you're going to get good service there. Same thing with travelers. We have an exceptional relationship with travelers. They're the bigger name, non-bargain insurance companies. Yeah, like Chubb and like Pure. Yep, right? yep. And then there's They're really smaller good. They
1: ones. Come, they come straightforward. But, you know, if you don't have those, if you don't, you don't have, have bifurcated, those, bifurcated, um, you may be a vulnerable victim.
2: Incredibly vulnerable. And if you think about it, John, there's the people who can't afford to pay mortgage and rent at the same time right and so then you have a choice you have cash on the table right or you can fight and maybe you have a good chance maybe you don't um and that's where people lose there is a lens of racial equity here as well two houses in an african-american neighborhood and a white neighborhood built at the same time built the same way same damage when The federal government programs and when the insurance payments are based on appraised value rather than based on Mm. cost of repair, Ah. the folks in the African American neighborhoods um, and the African American people get less money. So there is a lens of racial equity here that is rough. And we've all read over the past, it's gone on for a while, but we've read a lot recently how the same house in different neighborhoods built the same way. is appraised very differently mm. in a black neighborhood and a white neighborhood. Well, I can get, that, you guys, why don't, why
1: don't they change it to the cost to repair versus the cost of appraisal because uh, uh, the appraisal costs are always going to be different and different no matter what the neighborhoods are, but the cost to repair, that should be the benchmark. No.
2: That yes. You're spot on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, there's some articles I'll send to you and you can post to this if you wish, but absolutely. But that's an uphill battle. HUD is getting it better. Some insurance companies are getting it better. Not all of them. And it's a big, we got to get the system right. Like SVP can go, last year we built over 600 houses. We funded nonprofit groups and taught them the Toyota production system that built another 600 houses, 1200 families home. On one hand, you pat yourself on the back. It's great, but if we really care about people, we got to get the system right, and so mm-hmm. we got to get the compensation methods right. We got to prevent this process. And I hope, John, you didn't have to deal with this, where you're applying three different times. You apply to HUD or you apply to FEMA. FEMA, yeah. They're going to reject you. You cannot max out at FEMA unless they reject you. Then you have to go through appeals process, and we'll come back to that. Then you apply to SBA. Then Some people end up applying to HUD. We have a piece of legislation that was um, brought in in the last Congress. They didn't vote on it yet. That would allow a one app for all federal assistance, just like FAFSA. You Mm -hmm. apply once they pull your tax information and it applies to all government systems. The way it works right now, it's designed to drive attrition. You apply to FEMA. You have to get rejected. They send you to SBA. You can't get maximum FEMA unless SBA sends you back. FEMA in their own language, and they've gotten so much better, and the people really try. Um, they expect it to be a negotiation. They see it a dialogue. Yet only 2% of the people appeal. SVP mm-hmm. is running FEMA appeals. We have a over 70% success rate. And on average, we're doubling people's FEMA claims, so that no, shows. I'm sure. Sorry, I'm, no, I'm sure that you, yeah, you... Man. But yeah. the big promise. So if we do a thousand FEMA appeals a year, but only two percent of the people are appealing, so we that goes to your point. Let's get the systems right, and at SVP, that's something we're thinking about.
1: Now, Zach, what about these independent insurance adjusters for people that don't know what that is? If your house is destroyed, sometimes they're and the insurance company tries to lowball you. Then again, in this bifurcated system, not farmers or Chubb, right? Or, but if they try to lowball you and you have the means to say, no, I'll wait until I can get yeah. the right amount, then you can hire. And sometimes there's flim flam in and this also, There's independent insurance adjusters. And what they'll do is they'll basically like look at a wall and they'll go, okay, that's three pieces of sheetrock times a price. It's going to take two gallons of plaster times a price, two gallons of paint times a price. And they make literally itemize every little thing that has to be done. Then they take that to the insurance company and they say, okay, what do you want to argue about? And that's when the insurance company says, okay, you got us. And then they, they write a much bigger check. Is that basically the same thing that SPP is trying to do?
2: We do that with FEMA now, precisely that we get what's called an exactimate estimate. So that's the tool that's used by FEMA to do their compensation. And so we have independent contractors doing exactimate estimates. And that's the main reason why. um, And and we're causing the FEMA adjusters just to spend more time. But uh, John, you're spot on people 100% of the time, if they're dissatisfied, should explore using third party adjusters. Um, Oftentimes, it just gets the insurance company's attention. And they do the right thing. And they can't act in bad faith. You know, you start talking about trouble damages for bad faith, once the insurance companies know something, then they'll, they'll take it a little bit more seriously. But you got to advocate. And for a lot of people who are working, who are paying rent and mortgage at the same time, or living in a car or a house or garage or an attic or with doubled or tripled up with family members. And again, like these are people who aren't used to asking for help. The system is designed for attrition. So they give up. And they right. lose that hard won equity in the house that like fundamental bedrock of American, like ascending financially, the equity in your house and they lose it overnight because the system is designed to push them on the side and they lose that equity and other people swoop in.
1: Right. And then they'll fight you for, so maybe you can get the house repair, but they'll fight you for the contents. So, well, did that rug and that couch and that table, really cost that much, you know, show us pictures of the damage, show us pictures that it was the right. Give us the receipts. I mean, they make it so laborious that to your point, you almost want to give up because you feel like you're fighting a system. Every time you send something in, they send you something back saying you didn't put it in the right format. You didn't put it in our system format. You don't have this. You don't have that. It's almost like they just have a bunch of people on the other side that say, "Nope,
0: nope, nope, nope." nope, nope. This is Until feeling very up. personal, Mister McMahon. Very personal. Well, you
1: know, yes. Well, because I've <laughs> been through this twice—once with Ian, and one time up in uh, Massachusetts. Yeah. So I got—I have a couple scars on my back from this stuff, and I can empathize with all the people that go through this stuff. And I'm witnessing it still around me where I live right now in Florida.
2: Yeah, it's really hard for folks. The exceptional can get through it, but normal folks, I don't know that I I could. We have a value at SVP that's called the mom role. And it boils down to doing the work the, the way you'd want it done if it was your own mother. And for our own policies, if people are applying for help or if we're working with people or designing a program, we really think if this was our mother, would this be a system we feel fair about? We mm-hmm. want the federal government to have that same approach. We want right. the state governments to have that same approach. And sometimes mm-hmm. they do. So part of what we do is we train city and state disaster leaders to design and run their programs. We hired the team. Well, we had the leader in that part of the team who worked for Governor Haley in South Carolina, who ran the fastest mm-hmm. recovery on effort uh, on record. A guy named J.R. Sanderson. Uh, retired army colonel taught at the war college and he got dollars out the door in month 13 fastest on record wrapped it up in five years so his job and his team's job now is to work with other disaster leaders who are in charge of billions of dollars to focus on outcomes not just compliance
1: so zach talk to us a little bit you built 600 houses last year if i remember what you said Yes, and sir. you yeah. used what you call the Toyota production method. Could I'm not familiar with that. Our audience probably isn't. Could you educate us?
2: Yeah. So TPS, or the Toyota production system, is a management philosophy on how to constantly improve, improve and drive efficiency. Toyota came to us after about five years of work. We met him I met the woman who ran their foundation, Pat Pineda at a conference um where some other disaster group i won't name them um and they were polished and they had a ton of money and they had a celebrity right this guy good looking guy nothing like me tall great hair really expensive suit gives the pitch to all these corporate executives and i was nervous and then he came to his price tag And their aspirational price, not what they were actually building for, but their target price was double our price. Mm -hmm. Like, all right, we got it. And it turned out we did really well. I met Pat after, who ran Toyota's foundation, and I asked her to teach us how to build houses the way they build cars. You know, they invested money in us, would spend it, would spend it appropriately. But if they gave us knowledge, it would make us a smarter business. They have a team that trains both competitors, for-profit companies, and we were one of the first nonprofit companies. So they spent two weeks or they came twice a month, three days each, for nine months, um, looking at our processes. The first thing they asked us was if we talk about problems. And this was a time, John, when we had just Liz won the CNN Hero Award. We were on the cover of U.S. News and World Report. We were building more houses than anyone else. We were building 100 houses a year in New Orleans. We are only in New Orleans then. No one was close to it. We were the good guys. And they asked us if we talked, but we had plateaued. They asked us if we talked about problems. And I nodded. The team was near me. I didn't see them all shaking their head. So first of all, we have to change our culture. You guys, I'm sure, have read Good to Great, where they talked about Hewlett-Packard. They were the company that turned over the rock to look at the ugly things. They, that was their culture. That wasn't our culture. We didn't talk about problems. Second, they asked us if we were ahead or behind. And we said, what? I mean, we had no idea. We were just working hard. We valued working on a ton of houses. I think we had 30 or 40 going at a time rather than every house, every component for each day, or are we ahead or behind. So we spent nine months working with these guys and we ended up reducing construction time by 48% Mm -hmm. from 120 something days to 61 days a house. It was a big deal. 61 days days for a house is phenomenal. Yeah. More than that though, there were a couple things that were even more important. We learned this notion of Yoko 10, which means if you do it well, share it. So here's Toyota, right? Big company they trained competitors to use the Toyota production system. They train hospitals, they train Herman Miller chairs, a whole bunch of general industry partners. Mm -hmm. So we became this notion. We thought, all right, if a for-profit global company can take their resources to drive efficiency with others, we can do the same thing. And that's what started our share intervention when we began not just investing money but time, resources, and the Toyota production system. We thought, John, about the mom rule. If my mom was impacted, I wouldn't care if it's the people in the yellow shirts, the blue shirts, the green shirts, the turquoise shirts rebuilding the houses. So we realized for success for clients didn't just mean SDP doing more. It meant raising the efficacy of the industry. So that's the first thing we learned. Second, we learned we had to apply TPS across everything that we did, right? Driving greater efficiency. And by doing so, that's how we realized that just being reactive wasn't enough. Just building houses wasn't enough. If we really cared, they talked about upstream solution, the best upstream, and they talked about what would the customer want. Think about it, would the customer want us to rebuild their house? or would they want never to need our help in the first place? And so that's when we broke out our other work of, if you thought about it, what would you want? First of all, you'd want a resilient house. Next, you'd want the right insurance that you could access. If for whatever reason you didn't have the right insurance, you'd want the government programs to work. And mm-hmm. then if none of that works. You need a nonprofit group. Well, you really wouldn't care who it was. So that's why SPP does so much right now, because we focused on the business question or the Toyota question of what would the customer want?
0: Yeah. I loved in our, um, in our initial conversation, Zach, I this part right here, I thought would be tremendous value. It's all tremendous value for listeners. Um, but no matter what you do for a living, the way you, and I wrote it down the way you explained the TPS model to me You said, every day measuring whether you are ahead or behind and why too much in either direction is a problem that really made me think about my own business. It's not whether or not you're ahead or behind, but how much and in which way comes up all the time. And I thought it was just really, really profound. The other thing you said, a culture safe to talk about problems. Now, you just described it as... You know, focusing on the customer problem, which was customer centricity, which you listed for me, is one of the tenets of TPS. But a culture safe to talk about problems, meaning if the crap's not working, the culture supports the ability for people to talk about what's not working. And there's a lot of cultures that we interact with where people don't know how to bring that up. Um, The another point that you brought up to me was the best ideas come from the shop floor, And I'm like, man, like these are brilliant. Like the closer you get to the customer, the closer you get to the people working with customers, the closer you get to the nitty gritty of on the ground of what's going on. Um, So for executives that are listening to this, these tenants, I think are applicable for uh, any business today. And it's, it's not amazing to me, but it's so cool how you applied this to nonprofit and crushed it, which is, which is awesome. And my hat's off to you, brother. That is, it's really outstanding.
2: Thanks. It's a journey. We're getting better every day, but we're required to get better. Yeah. You know, in the, in the for-profit world, you can set your target on your rate of return, right? And you beat it and it's great in the people serving world. It's never enough. So you got to keep doing better. That's where this notion of our cultural foundation, John, is this notion of constructive discontent. Yeah. Have to be hearable. Can't assassinate a good message with a crappy delivery. We all have, whether it's at home or at work, we were right, but we were, maybe I'm just projecting, but we're profoundly unhearable. And the consequences of assassinating a meritorious message with a crappy delivery in the people-serving world is dire. So you got to be hearable, but you can never be satisfied. There's that Frederick Douglass notion of where there is no struggle, there is no progress. Our work requires yeah. progress, so we got to be willing to struggle, right? That's one thing that is very, very important to us. We have another corporate value or entity value that we call steering through turbulence. So if you think of a plane, right? Sometimes you, you got to steer into and through the turbulence, whether it's the easy flights where you just go through the cloud layer or to get to the more efficient air, or you got to steer through a part, into and through a part of the storm. If, if you're not doing it, if you don't feel, if you feel the bumps, that means you're on the right path. Yeah. Right. And so we steer up into that next layer and then through the turbulence to get where we need to be to get that efficient air to land the plane. And so we tell our team, like, listen, if there's some bumps here, that means you're not just packing it in and doing the safe job. You're doing what you have to do to honor the mom role for the clients.
0: These are so many uh, golden nuggets, Zach. uh, I'm remembering our pre-call and I'm so fired up that you're speaking to our audience Before we go any further, I want to, because I don't know if you remember, I asked you this question. I'm like, dude, you spent all these years in education and, and, um, you and your wife are both highly educated and, you know, you have, um, you, you commit all this time and, and to get the, to get these degrees. And I, I asked you like, where does the mentality of service come from? So, not a knock on your profession at all. I'm not saying that lawyers aren't service minded. I'm not saying that. But, dude, you go through all that education and then you become a public defender first. And then you, you know, you drop everything and you go and you start um, this entity, SBP. Can you share with us a little bit of how did you figure out like, I think you said your mom, you've mentioned the mom principle five times. And if I recall, I think you told me that your mother had a huge heart for service. Um, so for our listeners, just kind of tell us, how did that manifest itself into action? That service mentality.
2: Thanks. And, it, you know, it was two of us. So I think part, part of what worked is my wife and I have very aligned values. Um, and my wife, I think she just turned 50. I've never seen anyone accelerate into and through 50 better. It, it's amazing how it was a springboard to even like greater growth for. Her. But my wife's woman, she bought one new car in her whole life. I've never bought a new car. She grew up uh, going to go into Catholic schools in Washington, D.C and had great values. You know, her mm-hmm. parents had four kids they sent them all to great schools, but they were grounded in things that mattered. So before I talk about me, I think it's important just to note it like the couples need to be for us. It was the magic of we were aligned on what was important. Mm. We were aligned on what wasn't important. Um, so I, I guess I want to be clear about that. Um, you know, when I grew up, I have a great family, but my parents divorced when I was younger. um, When I was very young, I lived with my mom in a rented apartment in a really affluent town in Massachusetts, right next door to where Chris lives. Um, So I was in Belmont. He's in Lexington. My grandmother lived in Lexington and there was always a backstop. My grandparents were fine, but I kind of felt of a different ilk than some of the other families in our town because we were renting our place and my friends all had these big houses. And I was fortunate not to be in a household where I felt I needed to go make money to, you know, because we didn't have fancy cars. We didn't have fancy, a lot of stuff. We were fine, but we just didn't have fancy stuff. So it was never really in my mind that I needed a career to do that. My mother very quietly and my dad in his own way too, took care of people. Didn't talk about it. Wasn't a big preachy thing, but my, you know, my mother would go to the local, there was a baker. There was a really nice fancy baker in town and she'd pick up the chocolate croissants and whatever it was day old, and bring it to a homeless shelter. And, It wasn't a big, she didn't do it as part of anything. It was just something that her conscience told her to do. Her friend group was eclectic, I guess you could say. And it wasn't based on social status. It was based on other things. My dad's the kind of guy who, if he tells you he's going to do something, it's done. And so, I mean, it's more than done. It's just... It's, I don't know if you read the thing that's fascinating recently about Roman cement. Did you see this? Like they found the secret to Roman cement, why it stood up for thousands mm-hmm. of years when our cement falls apart. That That's my father's commitment. If he's going to do something separately, it's worth reading and we'll see how ancient technologies can drive what we're doing better today. Um, so it was nothing profound. Um, it wasn't part of a faith system. I was just lucky enough to have been exposed, but not dogmatically or doctrinally to doing important things. I did grow up in Massachusetts, right? Like many kids in Massachusetts, you heard about the Kennedy, candid- the non-political way of service, whether it was right or wrong, it doesn't necessarily matter, but things were romanticized in a way. And so I was fortunate enough, like, listen, public defenders, at least where I was in DC still make plenty of money. Um, you know, I, we were solidly middle class, but I, I never had aspirations because it was never really on the table. And maybe I wasn't thinking far enough down the road, but it just wasn't what was on our priorities. And we knew people. I guess the other thing for me is my family is racially diverse. There's a biracial family. My mother's sister married an African American guy who was my uncle who had a daughter who was my cousin. And, in a small family, we were raised similar. We were, we were raised very close. But I saw how the world treated us differently. Mm. And she was smarter than she's passed away out of a terrible car accident, tragically. Um, but she was always, she was older, she was smarter, she's better looking, she was cooler. But the world treated us differently. And I heard what some of my friends where I grew up said about black people. And so I had a little bit of red ass about that. And I, or sorry, I had uh, We can, Rachel edit that out. I had, uh, you know, it, it, it struck me in a way that I think the, the more I think of it influenced the way I wanted to spend my time in the world.
1: Yeah.
0: And I, I think, um, the the people that you've touched on the legal side. So we'll just kind of briefly talk about this. But one of the things that when I did some research, when we did some research on you, there's a Mr. Howard walking around today, who is an incredible story. You had an incredible impact um on his life. And I know you're probably not used to talking about it in a in a glorified way. And I don't want you to feel compelled to do that. But One of the things you're pretty well known for in your circles from a legal perspective is a highly publicized wrongful conviction case that you championed in in Mr. Howard. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, thanks, John. Um, Yeah, so it was a team. I should be really clear about that. It was a team. And we got a law firm that really uh, sort of rocket charged it. But I got a call I think when this was, in 2005, early 2005 from a judge, a great judge, Jeb Bosberg, who's now a federal, I think he's a security clearance judge, but great guy, former U.S. attorney, who said, hey, uh, Mr. Rosenberg, I want you to look into this matter. And I read the, it was a long file. Read the file. Long story short, um, four people were convicted in a murder where all the evidence, ballistic evidence, eyewitness evidence, not all, the vast majority of the evidence indicated three people did the killing. And I'll give you some examples. Ballistics, three guns, eyewitness statements, 15 witnesses said three guys, two witnesses, brother and sister, who one was on escape from the mental institution. The other was working off a crack cocaine charge, um, said there were two guys, or my guy was there, Mike Howard was there. This I just read this before I even met the guy, met Mike. Um, at trial, one of those two, when they said, who is Mr. Howard? They pointed to the wrong guy. Never should have been convicted. The case never should have been arrested, let alone never should have been convicted, never should have been tried together. So I read this. I read the file. I thought, uh, ah, this will be something. So I go on to meet Mike. And um, there's a lot of misconceptions about the people in jail. But from the moment I met him, Mike was one of the most self-composed, dignified, Peaceful guys i had ever met, and we talked for about an hour and a half that first day and um, I'd given Mike a legal pad to take notes and at one point, I saw a tear go from his eye to his cheek to the uh, to the legal pad I said, mr. Howard, what's going on and he said he he had hope first time at that point I think he was in for nineteen or 20 years and then I was freaked it just it it hit at a different level so long story short um, I investigated the heck out of the case each of the co-defendants wrote a letter, signed letter and were willing to testify they did it Mike didn't the mother of the brother and the sister, um, were ready or said rather, I'm sorry, I'm fast forwarding. Listen, uh, Bobby was home that night and Wanda was doing was Bobby Thompson and Wanda something. The mother that the mother made clear that they couldn't have been there that night. Um, and early on in the case, I went to the U.S. attorney. who's was a good guy. or the assistant U.S. attorney. I said, Tony, I'm going to give you everything. My guy didn't do it. So I kept feeding him the truth and my witnesses. And at that point, this is important. This is, this is hideous, but this is important. He put a cold case detective on it. Great guy, Jim Trainer. He investigates the case. And about a month before trial, before the hearing, and then I got a law firm, um, Venable, with Seth Rosenthal, a guy I knew who was a rugby-playing buddy of a guy I used to play rugby with, and Seth brought his whole team, which was incredible. <laughs> but a month before the hearing, the cold case detective said, I'm going to testify for your guy. Your guy didn't do it. Wow. About 10 days before the hearing, the – Tony Quinn calls up, who was the U.S. attorney's great guy. said, Zach, I'm withdrawing from the case. Why is that? He said, well, I can't stand behind the jury verdict. I said, well, Tony, if you can't stand behind the jury verdict, it's really easy, man. Don't oppose our motion. Well, I can't do that. My boss won't let me do that. Mm -hmm. And so the presidentially appointed U.S. attorney, We went in to go see him, and he said, you know what? We stand behind the jury verdict, but I'll make you a deal. Your guy drops his appeal. uh, He does two years, and he'll come home. Two more years? Two more years. We said, pound Sam. We said, no, we'll go talk to Mike, but no. Came back and saw him again. He said, all right, here's the deal. This last offer. He can go home in two days. Or we'll try it. But if we try it and you win, I'm going to appeal and he's going to do at least another year. So we took that to our client and Mike said, I want to go home. And so never pled guilty because he didn't do it. He pled um, in essence, a no contest. They reduced the charge and Mike's out, but because someone because of human lack of courage, he has a conviction and wasn't the benefit of all that comes with exoneration. Now, that's Mike criminal. is living, that's the crime here, is living a peaceful life. He's working, he's supporting his family. But I will tell you this, the world is better with Mike on the outside than it is on inside. He came to our wedding He spent his 50th birthday helping to work on our office in New Orleans. And he's truly one of the finest and most peaceful men I know. And if that judge hadn't given the file a chance, uh, our world would be worse because Mike wouldn't be with all of us. But it still hasn't treated him the right way.
0: Well, Zach, I appreciate you sharing that story. And, you know, we can do another podcast on the thousands or millions of people that are, you know, that get wrongfully convicted. And then the only way to get out is to say that they, you know, no contest or what have you, they still hold a conviction of something over their head. So I'm not going to dig into that political aspect. I just want to say to you kind of publicly here, you were born to be an advocate and this world is so much better off that, that that's the path that you took. Hey, Johnny, would you kind of dive us back into the volunteerism the
2: um, of SBP? Well, yeah, sure. But
1: first, you left out part of the punchline. Did they catch the guy that did it?
2: Well, the three guys who did it were in jail. Um, okay. They, so four people were convicted. Three did it. Okay. They got and part the of their right
0: testimony, guys. right? The guys that okay. got convicted. They said, they they said he wasn't there, which is goodness.
1: That's okay. Cool. Yeah, Zach, I mean. You really, you massed a giant volunteer network. You built a real community, you know, with your organization. Talk a little bit about the keys to building that type of organization and an extended volunteer network. That can't be easy, and it must be something that you constantly work on as
2: a leader. We do constantly work on creating the best possible volunteer experience we can. Uh, I'll tell you. So we were just talking about my criminal defense experience, right? I was a jaded dude, right? How could I not have been? I saw what wasn't working. Mm. Let me tell you what worked. As soon as Liz and I got to New Orleans and said, we're going to start helping people. We were inundated with volunteers, right? There were, we had this, it was two of us, a guy named Matt and then Linda Golden, who was on her way to Peace Corps. And she had six months. She was the volunteer coordinator. We were like nothing. We were just volunteers. No one was getting paid. Uh, Linda, we had a hundred volunteers a day, easily. we had
1: the hippies. Yeah, the hippies too.
2: And we had the hippies too. We had everybody. I mean, Liz <laughs> and I sometimes go back and we think through, oh my goodness. But that's a good point, John. Right there was there was no American demographic that didn't show up to help. Right, right. right. There was every faith or view on living faith or no faith, every racial background, every economic background, what changed my worldview was seeing these American people, people from all around the world, but American people coming to help saying there's people in need and there's a one-to-one correlation. And that's the key between me volunteering and a human result. Never once, Did someone say, you know, I really want to help, but how'd your client vote? Right. right. What do they think about this social issue? Yeah, who cares? None of that stuff. What really, so you asked how we built volunteer experience that we did have to help this endemic human American compulsion to drive impact as long as they see, and this is the key guys, a one-to-one correlation between what they're doing and human impact. Now, since COVID, it's taken us a while to restart that piece of the work. We're rebuilding houses now in nine communities across the country, plus the Bahamas. Um, but it took us a while to restart that volunteer component. But once we did, they're out in gangbusters again. And our secret sauce there, besides the value of, well, there's a few things we do, but the, the real engine to volunteerism for SVP is having AmeriCorps members. And I don't know if you or your listeners know what AmeriCorps is. In essence, it's the Domestic Peace Corps. Okay, These are folks 18 to 80, at least the type that work with us, who commit to spending 10 months of their life for really a stipend, it's not even a salary, helping others. Most of them are post-college, but we've had nuns, we have had doctors, we have people at all phases of their career. And they're the of the rebuilding part of what we do. They're the infrastructure. They're the volunteer coordinators, the site supervisors, the logistic people, the folks working with the clients. And they create this dynamic that makes volunteering magic. I mean, I I got from a Puerto Rico, I'm in Puerto Rico right now and I got a video a couple months ago from the Puerto Rican AmeriCorps members with the volunteers here. And they were dancing with the volunteers, you know, that build for an hour and then take a five minute dancing break. And it was this bonding. Like when we think about this country and there's anything we're concerned about, I really encourage you and the listeners to think of AmeriCorps and think of the spirit of post disaster volunteering, not just with us, with others. No,
1: there and are. Let's John's talk. Let's stories. talk about that, yeah, Zach. Yeah. We have a robust network of listeners. How can Great. they help you and help your organization and what you're doing?
2: Yeah, there's three things they can do. Um, first of all, they can come volunteer. They can come in New Orleans. They can come in Florida, Puerto Rico, Texas. They can come um, in the Bahamas, uh, in Saint Vincent, part of the Grenadine. We're turning volcanic ashes into construction blocks. So we're taking that which destroyed the community and we're rebuilding with, with but they can come volunteer. Um, second of all, and when they're volunteering, you can either volunteer and build houses. Nothing feels better. It's a great guy's trip, family's trip, father, son, mother, daughter trip. We've had bachelorette parties. We just wrapped up our 12th nuns build where we have Catholic sisters come from all around the country building houses. Anyone can do this. So they can volunteer by building, or they can also do their own version of the partnership with Toyota. And Lots of companies do this, where they take their best asset, their people, and they engage in a skill-based volunteering network. You know, we have a finance team, we have a social media team, we have a strategy we're working on. Most companies are excellent at something, and your people could help us. So in some way, volunteer. Certainly financially investing. Uh, either for a specific client or for a specific program is all terrific. It's a great thing for a company or a family to focus on. I'm going to get the Smith family home and it feels like a million bucks. Wow. It really is the butt for without your support. This family right. wouldn't be moving home. And can Sorry. we get the link to that for us? Yeah. We can it, put it in the yeah, show. So, yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> website. Is www.sbpusa.org. Okay. Uh, they can email me Zach at sbpusa.org. Um, and Zach, just for other, point of reference, how
0: much to how much to build a home? Roughly, average. it's different in every
2: community, but between ten and twenty thousand dollars, we'll get a family back home. Right? Come on,
0: peeps, for our listeners, come on, peeps, it's doable. Come to a Let's welcome go. home
2: party. Let's what go. What we'll do is. Send John's um, some links of Welcome Home Parties if you want to attach it to the clip when it's done. Tell you nothing feels better. We just finished our 250th client in uh, Puerto Rico. We also have a fund focused only on veterans called the I Got Your Back Fund that was capitalized by Beatrice, which is a pharmaceutical company formerly Mylan, now Beatrice. Their former CEO, Heather Bresch, was a tremendous supporter starting in West Virginia. And the current leadership team has doubled down on that relationship. And they capitalized the I Got Your Back Fund. American veterans are a good portion of our clients. However, they always think someone else has to go first. I mean, every community we've worked in, you come upon a veteran, you see they're in need and they say, well, this guy needs it more than I do. So the way we've found to maybe help them the best is have a fund that's only for veterans. So people can uh, invest in the, I got your back fund. The third way to help is let us help your people. It's free, you know, business continuity. Now people in this day and age, wouldn't build a factory or an office in an environmentally dangerous place, but with a work from home environment and with the changing weather patterns, too many of our employees, all of our employees, are living in places where their homes are at risk of being impacted by disaster. Our learnings, right, around making homes more resilient, getting the right insurance, and then after disaster and navigating FEMA, the truth about mold, can be part of your business continuity plan for the company. Um, and it's all free. We have the Equip app. Uh, we do webinars, and we'll work directly with your companies, people to make sure they understand risk before disaster and can navigate recovery. That helps us by helping more people.
1: That's awesome. Zach.
0: Hey Zach. Um, I, uh, we're just going to wrap up here and, and, um, I'm going to turn it back over to Johnny to, uh, to close it up. But, um, I wrote down on my notes here, um, a quote from Martin Luther King which is one of my favorites and I just felt like it it spoke to me while you were talking here in the last hour with us man's most urgent and profound question is what are you doing for others and uh I knew this was the way that the podcast was going to go down I knew what was going to come out that that like emotional connection um and it's even it was even stronger than than i had anticipated so thank you for what you do for others thanks for carving out time you're in flipping puerto rico right now serving others and you know working through internet issues and all kinds of things and we just we could not be more grateful to you for spending time with us well
1: done
2: yeah john and john thank you yeah sorry
1: well zach for me you know as i described earlier it really hit home um Having been right in the middle of, you know, the Hurricane Ian, and then, like I said, up in Massachusetts, I had a house that was flooded. So um I want to thank you on behalf of all the people that you serve and all the things that you give them, these people that are emotional and in dire need and don't know which way to turn. So thank you on behalf of those people,
2: and thanks for sharing that with our audience. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for the great work that you guys do. And let's meet up and build a house together. Let's get you home first, John. Um, But we can, we can, let's get to work.
1: You haven't seen Kaplan swing a hammer, have you? You have to give him something (laughs) It's
0: all good intentions, Zach. It's all good intentions,
2: brother. (laughs) I believe in you. I believe in you.
0: Hey, uh, we're going to put all that in the show notes, the connections to everything you said, Right. special fund for veterans, which spoke to me personally, uh, links to everything you talked about. And uh, we just thank you again so much for carving out the time. And for all those listening, we thank you as well to listening to another episode of Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.